Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. Firstly, huge thanks to everyone who has entered the competition to be a guest on this podcast. It's been brilliant to hear from you and I can't wait for the big book chat. If you haven't already entered the competition, there's still plenty of time. Just pre-order my brand new novel, Limelight, in hardback from bookshop.org and you'll automatically be entered into the prize draw. And come and say hello. I'll be doing a little Limelight tour. I will be interviewed by Dolly Alderton at the Fort Road Hotel in Margate on the 1st of June in conjunction with the Margate Bookshop. I'll be at Harbour Books in Whitstable with Catherine May on the 8th of June. I'll be at the House of Books and Friends in Manchester on the 12th of June. And I'll be at Prima Donna Festival on the last weekend of July with plenty of other events to be announced. Hopefully I will be coming to a town near you soon. Also, I'm so excited about this. I'm going to be at the first ever Queen's Reading Room Festival, reporting from Instagram on the 11th of June and bringing you exciting festival news. Tickets are on sale now, and so you can come and see some actual legends, including ostentatious Judy Dench and Ken Follett. If you can't make it, keep an eye on my Instagram at the Daisy Bee, and I will be showing you all the exciting news. Now on to our guest, Jenny Jackson, the author of Pineapple Street, the book I recommend to everyone saying... It's like Catherine Heine wrote Succession. It's about two sisters and a sister-in-law working out whether it's possible to be a wealthy person and a good person in the smartest part of Brooklyn. Jenny is also an editor at Knopf and Catherine Heine is one of her many celebrated authors. We hung out at Mr B's Emporium in Bath and talked about our standard deviation obsession, Kevin Kwan, being a publishing professional and a huge book fan. And I think this is the only conversation we've ever had on the podcast where we've been interrupted halfway through by a cheese shop alarm. Enjoy. It's really exciting for me to have someone on the podcast who is... Um, an author and an editor who's a real a book lover in all dimensions and I wanted to know what's the first book that you bought as an editor what's the first thing that leapt out at you that you loved and thought oh my goodness I have to work on this yeah it was um my maybe third year in publishing and I was working at Vintage and um and so my only option would be to buy a paperback original and I read this novel, um, and it was called Pretty Little Dirty. The author's named Amanda Boyden. And it was this punk rock coming of age set in the 1970s. And it was 
exactly the right book for a 25-year-old editor to buy. It was funny and smart and edgy and really about those friendships formed in your youth. And, you know, I didn't buy it for very much money. I, um, I paid $25,000 for it, which, you know, is about right for a paperback original. And I ended up up against a hardcover publisher and our bids were kind of about the same. And for whatever reason, this wonderful author went with me and we ended up selling the hell out of it. It was a huge success and it was so much fun for me. And I still think I'm just so grateful to that writer because buying your first book is the hardest. I imagine that, you know, for her as well, the the excitement of, of that and having that relationship with her and getting all of your enthusiasm and passion and energy. You know, I think that sometimes for authors that kind of like rather than having someone who's like oh I've been doing this for 50 years like you actually you want the person who's like oh my goodness I'm so excited to work with you on this yes like literally I will pour my all my everything into your publication because I'm hanging my whole entire reputation on it because when you're first starting out you need to be able to get your name in publisher's lunch as someone who has made a deal then agents will trust you to send stuff you need you just need to have done it before and it's it's so hard to buy that first book but then after I bought that one I then bought um, a book by this guy Patrick Somerville who's go he's gone on to be a big screenwriter in Hollywood and he actually wrote the TV show for Station 11 by my other author Emily St. John Mandel ah. so it's just the smallest thing in the world and then my third book I bought was Lauren Fox's first novel and I've now published Lauren Fox for I don't know, 17 years or something. So it all feels like it kind of steamrolled out from that one book. I love that. And I love the idea of it being a a long-term relationship and seeing the the writer grow. I have to ask you about Station Eleven because that's one of those iconic books. What was it like working on that? And how did that kind of come to you? Well, it came to me in the most cheaterish way. So I have this phenomenal, phenomenal sales rep who works um, for the Knopf Group. His territory is the Midwest and his name is Jason Gobble and he doesn't work out of the PRH offices. You know, he he works um, in Wisconsin. And Jason had heard about this independent novel that had been published um, and this writer, Emily St. John Mandel, who was writing these, you know, works of literary noir that independent booksellers were getting excited about. And she was very much taking herself around on tour. I mean, she wasn't like literally selling copies out of the back of her car, but she was paying to she was paying for her own gas to drive herself around the Midwest to try and build a reputation. And you know, she had sold hundreds of copies of each book, but not even a thousand of each. So my rep Jason Gobble said, you have to check out this writer, Emily St. John Mandel. You have to check her out. So I had bought the books, but to be honest, I was just so like swamped on a day-to-day that I hadn't had the chance to dip in when one day this agent who I was friendly with, Catherine Fawcett, came to me and she said, I have this incredible novel. You won't have heard of her, but the author is named Emily St. John Mandel. And I was immediately like, oh my God, I'm a fool. Why haven't I already read these books? I could have been the first one in. I could have had my hands all over this before everybody else. And now it's out to everyone in town. I knew I was going to like it from like the first page. I read it in one big gulp. And then there's this thing that happens to me as an editor when I love a book where I become completely unhinged and miserable because I'm so afraid that I'm not going to get that book. And so I was like, 
sick about it. And um, there was a big auction. It went around and around. But people were um, turned off by the track, you know? Oh, three small books. Why is this one going to be so much better? Ooh, every time we go into, you know, one of the bookstores, they're going to only want to take 10 because their last book only sold five. You know, so we were... We were competing with a track, but it was just so clear that this book was different. And um, so I splashed out on it and took a risk. And that risk now looks like hilariously unrisky. It's been just like dreamy because right away, all the sales reps had been hearing about Emily for ages. So they um, they made it kind of the, the tidal wave pick, meaning all the sales reps from all the divisions picked it as the one book they were going to go crazy for for that year. Awesome. I love that. And I love that feeling of it sort of it is meant to be that her name just kept nudging its way into your conscience. And you're like, yes, of course. Yes. But like, also like, I, I am such a failure. Why hadn't I already read her? Jason told me to read her. But I have every step of the way sung Jason's praises because, you know, he did everything but like spoon feed me that book. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about early reading and the books that you chose when you were growing up and what your relationship with reading was like. You know, we're um, a reading family and we did a lot of reading aloud, which I now do, you know, of course, with my own children. We read tons of sort of swashbuckling adventures. We read lots of fantasy. We read Chronicles of Narnia and Eric the Viking and The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And that was the sort of crowd-pleasing stuff for my family. And then once I started reading on my own, I think I was floundering a little bit in, you know, late elementary school and I didn't really know what to be reading. And I really credit my dad with figuring out that um, there was a genre of books for girls just my age, you know. And so he started bringing me the Sweet Valley Twins and the Babysitter's Club and all those books that are just tailor-made for for young readers that age. And I was I was a goner, you know. We would go to the local bookstore and I think still to this day, like, you know, the pleasure that you have when you discover a writer who's already written like eight books and you're, oh my gosh, I can experience this over and over and over now and go back and read everything. You know, I don't read a lot of series now, but series reading when you're a child is just like the best. So you go to the bookstore and you're like, yes, I'll buy numbers six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. Thank you. (laughs) You're like, I've read them all, but I know more are coming in a month. That comes up a lot especially uh, the babysitter's club which i was a huge fan of and in england that world stonybrook connecticut seems so glamorous and so sort totally. of aspirational and unknown um i wonder there must be i know there are lots of series now and i think the series i see tend to be more kind of you know genre specific which is fine but like what um you know what would that book be a sort of very like realist escapist place that is like Sweet Valley or Stony Brook? Yeah, that's such a good question because there is something so like wonderfully basic about those books and about those worlds. And I, you know, I just remember also with the Sweet Valley twins with their turquoise blue eyes and you know Elizabeth and Jessica and their blonde hair and they were a perfect size six and there was I mean in some ways like pretty messed up all of the like you know Mm. body shaming and like you know 
ideal blonde idealism that was baked in there i just reread um i found my friend had a spare copy of the first sweet valley university book oh elizabeth has a crisis because she i think gains half a pound oh my god (laughs) she's like she can't stop snacking because she's having a miserable time and actually to be fair it's a you know elizabeth is sad she sort of excelled all the way through high school and now she gets lost at college and she is definitely self-medicating and there is some very sweet and wise stuff about how we comfort ourselves but also quite a lot of sort of messed up and problematic stuff about like you need to just you know get back to whatever way you're fighting weight i know i mean it's just in some ways it's like everything we used to love is problematic now you know i mean we just were in such a a different era but i think babysitters club was a little better, you know, like I think the fact that it was, uh, you know, the, a multiracial cast and that, you know, there were characters who had strong relationships with their grandmother, or, you know, it was, it was a, it was a step up, I think. Mimi, is that Claudia's Mimi. Oh, I don't, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but um, when Mimi dies, I, it wrecked me. me. I mean, that's it another thing me. I think about the Babysitter's Club, which is there was, um, I honestly don't know, I believe Anna Martin did write them um and there was a a sense of evolution and there'd be subtle differences and the characters would change a bit and obviously um jesse and mallory come along later i'm just realizing how quite my i didn't realize i remembered all this no i'm so impressed right now but sweet valley high there are tons of plot holes they're all written by different people and you know to say like you will pick up anyone and it's like oh lila fowl is being mean and bruce patman's driving his bruce porsche or something i think so too yeah oh it's bad you know that that. part though about claudia and mimi there's this moment in it where i don't know if you remember this part but um mimi always calls her my claudia and one day claudia overhears Mimi calling Christy, my Christy. And she's so heartbroken about it. And it's really funny because she is like tapping into this incredibly real thing that girls felt with either their grandparents or their parents and this sort of need for a place of primacy uh, from a loved one and how hard it is not to have that. It's, you know, it's like your first love affair. You want your mom to love you best you want your grandmother to love you best and I remember like really feeling that with Claudia oh it's so visceral isn't it it is yeah really really well observed I think those books kind of do so more than they so much more than they were given credit for the reason I have uh, lured you here, Jenny, is yes. because I was desperate to find someone else to talk to about Laurie Colwyn yes a thousand times yes I think we both love um, Happy All the Time. Is that the first one of her novels that you read? And how did it come to you? Strangely, I think that Home Cooking was the first one I read. And I was working at Vintage at the time. And I think that um, we were going to be repackaging her books, which is funny because they've just gone through a repackaging. So this was a repackaging that you know must have been, I don't think it was 20 years ago, but maybe like, 15, 17 years ago. So I read Home Cooking first, which is funny because I hate cooking, but I absolutely fell in love with her voice. And then I think um, Happy All the Time was the next. And Happy All the Time is the one that I believe I reread most recently. And I think it's my favorite, but maybe I need to do another deep dive to decide. But I'm just so into that book because I think the way in Happy All the Time, she 
She tells a love story from two male perspectives. I haven't read that in a long time. That's amazing. I can really feel it in Pineapple Street because I think I think a lot about this a lot. That Laurie Colwyn's world, there's an interesting sense of kind of wealth and privilege, but also you do feel that she is maybe an outsider to it. But I guess in the 70s and 80s and probably, you know, the 60s maybe was when she was experiencing it, I get the sense that the gulf wasn't quite so enormous that you didn't feel that way and the wealthy families in her books they're not they don't covet their own wealth they're not always trying to acquire more there's a sense of comfort and I always get them mixed up but in happy all the time Guido who works at the it's like there's a family trust or foundation yes a literary magazine yes. and it's a job that shouldn't exist yes and he's perfectly happy and he's sort of he works hard enough but he's obviously not killing himself and right. and they're able to kind of do what they want to do and pursue it joyfully a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. We'll be back with Jenny soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Fat Talk, Coming of Age in Diet Culture by Virginia Soul Smith. This is a brilliantly written, utterly absorbing examination of the way we talk about our bodies and our children's bodies, unpicking all of the complicated messaging we've ever absorbed about the arbitrary standards that have been forced upon us. 
There's no one I wouldn't recommend this to. I learned so much from it and I've thought about it every day since I've read it. Fat Talk by Virginia Soulsmith is published by Bonnier and out now. Now back to Jenny. Hello, listeners. Uh, there has been a slight interruption because we are recording at Mr. B's in Bath, as you probably know, because I've probably done an introduction to that effect. Um, we're opposite a cheese shop and their alarm has just gone off. Someone is trying to steal cheese. So we are now in the basement of Mr. B's. So I think that Jenny and I were talking about privilege and how that world is written about in stories and loving books set in the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s at a time when there was a much softer, smaller gap between the the mega rich and the not mega rich. And now there is a, a huge, huge gulf. Yeah. And you've written this beautiful book that's got that amazing kind of Laurie Colwyn a feeling. That kills um, me. Thank you. Thank you. That kills me. There's no higher compliment. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I'm, you know, I really am so delighted to say, and I think I remember um, saying that and not knowing that, you know, she was such a an important voice in your life. Yeah, but, um, but what you're touching on, is, sorry to jump in, but is just feels so incredibly true because my husband grew up in New York City and he talks about how when he was a kid, the rich kids had parents who were doctors and I remember this from when I was a kid the the rich the rich girl in my high school her dad was a dentist and now it's like no they're hedge funders they're investment bankers they're it's it's just a different world because that's what's so great and so crazy about Fleischman's in trouble that Toby Fleischman is like oh he's a doc- he poor doctor barely scraping a million a year How and they always go oh a doctor good for you and it's so condescending it's really wonderful <laughs> I'd love to hear as well about places in books. I was thinking about kind of literary New York and, yeah. you know, reading about that, but sort of generally as well, places that you have loved more because of the way they are written about. And I think New York especially is always such a character when there's a New York book. Absolutely. I mean, the funny thing about New York is that there are a zillion different New Yorks. And I think that depending on your neighborhood and your um roommates and your level of happiness at any given moment, you can have a really different experience. And when I was a teenager, I remember reading um, Paul Auster and reading about that New York. And I thought New York was this like, you know, really edgy, cool, artsy place. And like, yes, that definitely exists there. Um, But then on the other hand, you know, I remember when I first moved to New York, reading Claire Massoud and the Emperor's Children. And that is sort of the glossy uptown Central Park adjacent New York. And, you know, I haven't ever really experienced that New York, but I think that New York is familiar even to, you know, readers of like the Gossip Girl series or something. That sort of um, uptown New York is, is a very established one. I think that's yeah. it sort of, can, you know, it's modern Edith Wharton, isn't it? It is, right. Yes, because it's hotels and taxi cabs and, you know, that that and and restaurants and private clubs and then you know Brooklyn for so long in fiction and popular culture was portrayed as um as like much sort of less desirable than Manhattan and then we sort of had the Lena Dunham era of Brooklyn which was like you know warehouse parties and hipsters and I don't know people white people doing drugs in Williamsburg (laughs) and then I think it's been interesting to write about 
Pineapple Street and write about my neighborhood in Brooklyn Heights in a way that I think feels both accurate but um, exaggerated. I mean, one of the funny things is I, I work closely with Kevin Kwan on the Crazy Rich Asians books, and the sense of place is like really, really vital to what Kevin does. And I had this hilarious situation where I was going to be going to Shanghai and Kevin had written in his second novel about Shanghai. And I was like, wow, that sounds so glamorous. Kevin, tell me where to eat. Tell me what to do. So he gave me some tips. I had an excellent time, but there were these moments where, you know, I wanted to get a taxi and I couldn't get one and really nobody spoke English fair play, but I, but they didn't, and I didn't know how to get around. So I would have to have, you know, the hotel um, concierge would write the address for me on a piece of paper, and I would kind of hand it to the driver. And when I got back, I said, you know, Kevin, Shanghai was not exactly the way it felt to me in your books. And he said, no, no, of course not, Jenny. I create a version of every city I write about. I just turned up the volume. So that's something I like really consciously did when writing Pineapple Street was I pumped up the volume on Brooklyn Heights. I made it spiffier and shinier and leafier and fancier, you know? And maybe in the way that those old, you know, sort of like mid-century books do, where it's got everything feels really real and really solid. Um, I mean, I love those interior details. And that to me felt so, I could really see it and fit just the the crap in their house the beloved valuable important yeah you know antique crap but still and those sort of piles and it felt so refreshing in a world when I feel like everything is like oh I'm just it's the West Elm catalogue which is not not where I live (laughs) not what I recognise and to have that sense and it made me think a lot of um I don't know if you know that writer Anita Bruckner oh yes I've read many 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 Anita Bruckners yes and she's so good at those very funny, very stuffy interiors. Yes. Whether it's people who are she's looking down on because all their things are new and there are lots of things and yes. they're really suffocating yes. in the room. I honestly, I don't think I I can picture an Anita Bruckner scene that takes place outside. I'm sure there are many of them, but I literally only picture things happening, you know, in people's drawing rooms and living rooms and yeah, in their homes. Oh, I kind of thought, um, oh, what's that film with um, Melissa McCarthy and Richard e. Grant? Um, will, could you ever forgive me? Will you oh, ever yeah. Forgive me? And that has, that feels to me like an Anita Brooke novel, novel feels, even though I don't think she wrote anything set in or around New York. But that yeah. always being inside yes. and everything being a little bit claustrophobic. Well, this is a really weird question. But so um, if an author has not, really spent much time describing the room or the home or, you know, the, the, the setting. Do you have like a go-to set in your head where you just put the people and picture them moving around? I do think it's different for me every time. But then sometimes I think, oh, is that my actual imagination or is that just a composite of other spaces I know and that I've seen? But sometimes, like there's um, Free Love by Tessa Hadley. And I'm not, I can't remember how much she describes, but I've got such a clear picture of like the driveway and this house and like the patterns on the curtains and like the layout and the kitchen and the space of it. And I, I don't feel like she's given me all of that but she just somehow evokes it between the lines like do you have a a, a set well no it's yes and it's so embarrassing because I literally it's this girl I was friends with in middle school and I spent a lot of time at her house 
And so whenever a book isn't really describing the living room, I'm like, well, they're in Molly's living room. Like, that's just (laughs) where my brain goes. I'm reading um, this really wonderfully nutty novel right now called Big Swiss by Jen Began. And it is like an outrageous premise. It's about this woman whose job is she's a transcriptionist for a sex therapist who becomes fascinated with a patient of his who is very tall and from Switzerland, and she refers to her as Big Swiss. But anyway, the protagonist lives in the basement of a home that has been, the walls have been overtaken by wasps. And it, it is so, I mean, you picture exactly where she's living in this basement room full of wasps. And it is one of the most, I don't know, kind of involving interiors I've read in a long time. That's that's such a real problem that a person might have. Anyone who's ever rented space in a big city would be like, mm, I can <laughs> And it's that. infested, yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's a book I really loved that, I mean, I think it did really well and was like hugely acclaimed, but I think it could always deserve a bit more love and attention. It's Dating Elaine by Dawn Winter. I edited that book. Oh! Yes, I love that book so oh, much. Yeah, and it deserved to be huge, but... We'll get her there. We'll get her there. I just, I felt like that move from flat to flat. And again, that was like, what did she tell me? And what could I feel? But I could absolutely imagine a wasp infestation in there. It really Completely. had that. And again, I thought that was such a brilliant and weird premise that she's like, I just want to like drug her, pay my dealer, make the soup. And, then, and make my soup and make my soup. Somehow the, there's, um, the main character works, um, in a in a kitchen as a dishwasher and the secret of it is that she's actually a cook and she actually knows how to make amazing soup but she's like so afraid of herself and so afraid to let her light shine that she doesn't ever cook it's really actually such a wonderfully layered character sedating elaine it's just such a special book because the main action is the idea that to do to do what she needs to do to pay off this debt she needs to kind of increase the debt and it's quite as um, a writer, I'm like, oh, I f- that feels like a big ask in a way. Or like it sort of it shouldn't work, but it does work, and you go with it. And you're like, yes, yes. great. Of course, now I know right. that you're someone who is doesn't think logically when you're panicking, which is all of us, right? Yes. Um, now I wonder. I know you're also a Catherine Heine fan. Yes. And I wonder if you've read Games and Rituals yes. yet. I was just thinking about that. Oh, I'm talking about good. New York because there are a couple of stories, and there's one where is it her roommate or something? And there's a, they're moving out. Well, um, I was going to mention the one where she is helping her husband's ex-wife move out, oh. and she keeps having to carry the boxes. Is that what oh, you were thinking of? There was, is also the roommate one, pandemic behavior. Yes, I think I might be thinking of that, but I loved that one. And the detail about her taking the coat and the endless yes. kind of, the tiny boxes and the, the cruelty. Well, Catherine writes hilariously about the relationship between two women who have at any point been married to the same man. And it's like such a fabulous recurring relationship in all of her work. And in this, you know, the the main character clearly kind of stole the husband of this woman, but doesn't feel remorseful at all. But she's really bummed that she has to help her move out of her house. And she's sort of uh, the woman sort of getting her revenge, making her carry box after box after box after box. And I love the small pettiness of it, right, of wearing the best coat in the closet instead of taking the, like, messy one that that the wife would pr- prefer that she be wearing. And then doesn't she doesn't she nick the gloves at yes, the end? Yes, she yeah. steals the gloves. It's great. It's great. <laughs> 
I love that final story as well about them getting drunk at the airport bar. Yes, I think I will probably always think of that every time I walk through an airport. I recently was walking through an airport um, really early in the morning and there was a woman at the bar drinking red wine. And I was like, "Ooh." I mean, not to judge, but I, I feel like you red wine in the morning. I'm like, I would, I would just have a massive headache before lunch if I did that. Um, but I just couldn't help but think of that novel, which I mean, that story because it starts out really just being about a woman with a flight delay and ends up being about a woman who has worked so hard to recreate herself, which is so neat because airports really are about second chances, inventions. Who, where are you going to go? How are you going to change your life? You know. Which I suppose that's one of the big themes in standard deviation, isn't it? That there are kind of infinite orders and infinite, um, I want to say Graham. Yes, you're right. But also I'm aware that British and American readers might pronounce that or think of that name differently. Is it Graham McGrath? We go with Graham. Graham. These infinite selves that the people that we're the most intimately involved with can never kind of know or see. Yes, I had a moment um, the other day when I was in a cafe in Margate where I live and I was talking to, I um, went to get coffee, I went to lunch with producer Dale um, and I admired her, she had like a play suit or a jumpsuit on and we were talking about nails and when we go to get our nails done and suddenly I looked up and Dale had gone and I'm like, I don't know how much time has passed, That's <laughs> I had become Audra. <laughs> well you know what's so funny, I wonder... Um... You might already know this. Catherine might have talked about this um, at some point in promotion. But so, you know, she has the two novels, um, Standard Deviation and Early Morning Riser, and each are about a marriage, a relationship. Originally, all of those people were to be in one novel. It was to be one novel about two couples, two very different couples. But as she started to write, she realized that they each just needed, each couple needed their whole own book. But it's interesting to think about because the relationships are so different, but they're reversed because um, in standard deviation, Audra is hopelessly gregarious while Graham sort of not suffers her, but deals with her overwhelming personality. And then in, in the next novel, it's Duncan. It's the man in the relationship who has sweetly had sex with every woman he's ever met. And, you know, his girlfriend, then wife, Jane, sort of has to make peace with the fact that all women are on better than friendly terms with her <laughs> husband. Um, so it's funny because you could see how they're two halves of a coin, even though they're two distinct novels. Gosh, I never thought of them all existing in the same space, but that makes so much sense. But what that? would happen if Duncan and Audra met? Ooh. Oh. I mean, do you think that they they might not, like each other they yeah, might be really freaked right. out by each other that woman is too much that man is too much yeah really maybe <laughs> <laughs> but then as well what about the all of the other people in that i'm just thinking about in standard deviation the amazing the thanksgiving dinner where everyone gets sick and oh, seeing God. duncan and jane around that table and maybe Jane would really bond with Graham because they're both, they love the idea of hosting. Yes. Graham's actually good at it. I yes. think Jane just wants to kind of perform it. Yes. Like, oh, where did you get these napkins? Well, it's funny because Catherine Heine and I share um, just an abhorrence of house guests. Um, and that sort of works her way, works its way into her fiction time and again. Like now I don't even remember which 
Was it in Standard Deviation where the preacher come, the reverend comes and like lives with them for a while? Do you remember that? That yes, maybe that in Standard Deviation. Is it like a and and, and ends up at the Thanksgiving, mm. right? I don't. But time and again, no. It is. It's almost like a running gag throughout all of her work that there are just always wretched house guests. And then no, it um. And then there's one where it's like an old guy with his dog who comes and stays with them. Oh yes, and it's it's like someone's. Yeah, he, the kid makes a friend. Oh, he makes and, a friend. That's right. And they're so like, we must cultivate this friend. Well he has done. no friends. Well it means done. This grandfather is dog. And the dog come along. Her. The things we do for love. I mean, really, like the things we do for mm. love. Because my husband knows that I hate house guests, but um, when he has friends in town, and I know it's so important to him, I pretend that it's okay with me. So if any of my husband's friends hear this, just kidding. I love you. You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, there is something, I think, you know, magical and divine about putting yourself through that experience and then getting your house back. Yes, um, truly. My mum and dad have a family from Ukraine staying with them at the moment. And I think they're making plans to kind of, you know, move. And I get they want to stay in the UK. And I guess, you know, they, they want to build a life that is um, outside, <laughs> outside my parents' house. Yeah. It's understandable. And I think they have found it you know, really incredible. I think they're really glad they could do it, but also having a whole family staying with them for for many months. I think they knew it was going to be a challenge. And, yeah. and you know, and they are lovely and delightful and wonderful and amazing. But sure, but how generous, yeah. That, you know, the sharing of space. Well, I Who, think that's why I'm weird about it, is when I was a kid, my parents, who are quite bohemian, were just always inviting people to come and live with us. So we would have people live with us for months and so I think that's what's made me like no no my space mine you know it's made me apparently not very generous about it now I'm inspired to do better well there are there are always we there are things we can do that helps but also that don't make us crazy (laughs) who would you as a characters from literature and fiction who'd make the worst house guest well she would make the best and worst i would obviously have bridget jones come and stay with me and she would make a gigantic mess and her clothes would be everywhere and there would be you know makeup and bits of chocolate and spilled wine but i would be so unbelievably happy so i pick her i feel like she would also be like look let me let me make you a huge pie we're going to you know cook we're going to go out there's that amazing bit i think i think it's in the second book where she has I think she's come back from Thailand and she's maybe getting the weird death threats that turn out to be from Gary the Builder and she's staying with Jude and Shaz and she Marcus said like oh you must come and stay with me in my enormous um Holland Park mansion and they're not really seeing each other and Bridget's like oh god no it's it's too weird and I can't and she says she's sleeping in a room with Jude and Shazza and Shazza snores and turns over and somehow, like, knocks a glass of wine into a handbag in her oh, sleeve. God. And Bridget's like, I'm going. That's it. I'm out. That's the one thing. <laughs> uh, when did you read Bridget Jones? I read Bridget Jones. You know what? This is the funniest. So um, I was, uh, I guess, probably the summer before I left for college. And I was... Um, at my boyfriend's house and his mother had it on the counter and I saw it and I thought, 
I want to be reading that. But I had the sense that maybe it was like age inappropriate for me or something, which it wasn't because I bought it and I read it and I loved it. And then for years, Bridget Jones for me was that book that I turned to whenever I had a bad day, you know, and I think I probably read it 20 times. And then I don't know, some years ago, maybe 10 years ago, Sonny Mehta called me into his office and he said, Jenny, are you a fan of Helen Fielding? And I said, oh my God, I'm only the biggest fan in the world. I read Bridget Jones all the time. And I just like went on and on. And he was like, would you like to edit her next book? Oh my God, yes. So I edited the last two Bridget Jones books and it was, I mean, the most fun experience of oh, my life. Wow. I love Helen. I, I can't believe that every time I'm like, oh, I love this book so much. But yes, that was me. So it was that Mad About the Boy and... The, and Bridget Jones's Baby. The, the prequel to Mad About the Boy, Yeah, I guess. exactly. And it was just so much fun. And she is just exactly who you would want her to be. I think Mad About the Boy is really, really underrated I think it's incredibly dark and sensitive and I love the sexy is he like the boys PE teacher yeah yes um he kind of comes Mr Wellington is that it oh god no Mr it's Mr W something anyway I'm messing it up the screenplay she's trying to write the leaves in his hair yeah and and she kind of gets confused about whether it's like Chekhov or Dostoevsky (laughs) I mean yes she was obviously just like poking so much fun at the Hollywood industrial complex. It was so fun to read. I mean, another book that I think should get a lot more love is Cool Celeb, which... Yeah, I loved that too. Totally. That was third book, right? I think, well, that came out in the UK before um, the Bridget Jones books. Who knew? It, you know, it did all right, but at the time it didn't set the world on fire. And I wonder if it was released in America. It was. Afterwards. It was. Based on the, but I thought that was such a smart, concept the way it satirizes no maybe it was her first and then olivia jewels and the overactive imagination would have been her third because i was um i had a a year out a gap year before Mm. university and i went traveling around america and i saw her doing a reading for olivia jewels in albuquerque where (laughs) bizarrely i happened (laughs) to be and her book tour was like new york la albuquerque because i think she liked the idea of santa fe and that was oh that's so great i love it But I asked her a very, 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 very long question. And she immediately said, ah, you're a British person. I'll translate this to everyone. Amazing. You know, so we had this out of control event for her. It was um, at the Housing Works bookstore in Soho in New York. And in the middle of the event, a woman in the front row all of a sudden slumped to the side and fell out of her chair. Helen leapt off the stage to cradle this woman and check her pulse while they called the paramedics. It was like heroic. I mean, it's like you have those moments where you're like, never meet your heroes. Oh no, meet Helen Fielding. She's a legit hero. It was incredible. And the woman was okay. And and did she have like medical... Like I think she's under training. No, but the weirdest thing is like the um the person on stage had been just in as they were chatting had said, if you weren't going to be a writer, what career would you like? And she had said, Oh, I'd be a doctor. Oh. And then like the woman falls out of her chair and she's like, Doctor Helen, and like jumps <laughs> off the stage. It was wild. That's incredible. I'm also thinking about, you know, girls fainting at Beatles concerts. Oh, I know. Yeah, maybe she was just overwhelmed. I love Helen Fielding so much, maybe. (laughs) I kind of relate to that. Yes. I do not want this conversation to end, but I think we might have to start drawing things to a close. Thanks to the 
cheese shop alarm. What books are on your pile that you're excited about reading? So I have just started reading the new Curtis Sittenfeld, um, which, you know, I kind of can't believe I didn't gulp it down the day it came out, but I have been um, making sure that I have a moment to like really dive in and read the whole thing because I'm such an extreme Curtis fan. And then um, and then I'm going to keep going on Big Swiss by Jen Began. I'm halfway through. Nice. Oh, I loved romantic comedy. And I feel because I was very like, I don't really want to read any like pandemic books. I'm not ready. But if I can read anyone's pandemic book, it it's got to be Curtis. Curtis. Yes. And it's a good I kind of I want um, I don't know how far along you are, but the very first bit that's in the world that's obviously like yes. SNL. Yeah. Um, and I can see why the story had to move and there had to be a plot and it's all, you know, brilliant and I loved it. But also just a whole novel about that woman doing her job in SNL and being a comedy writer with no other plot. Just like that. That yeah. would be my dream. I, I just can't. I, she obviously did a ton of research and I'm blown away to think about all of the work that all those writers must do on Saturday Night Live to make skits that nobody ever gets to see. And can I please just buy a book of the rejected skits and read them to make myself laugh? I think it would be so fun. That would be a dream. Oh, wait, I am an editor. I literally could do that. <laughs> Great idea. I'd read that. You heard it here first, listeners. Awesome. Oh, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Huge thanks to Jenny. Pineapple Street is published by Cornerstone and out now. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find all the books that Jenny mentioned at acast.com slash booked and you can see a selection at bookshop.org. You can find us and follow us on social media at whybooked. If you've given us a five-star review already, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. If you haven't given us one yet, it is the very best way to help people to discover our podcast and their new favourite book. I leave you with this from Celeste Ng. The story is truly finished and meaning is made not when the author adds the last period, but when the reader enters. See you next time. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.